Hi, folks. Welcome to the Fig Tree Ministries podcast. This episode is a part one, basically an introduction to what ended up being a 16-part series on the seven cities and their churches that are in Asia Minor that we find in the book of Revelation. Now, you can also find these lessons are loaded up to videos on YouTube at the Fig Tree Ministry YouTube channel. And, you know, when I originally presented the class, I, of course, included a lot of photos from my travels to the archaeological sites of each one of these cities. So as I'm talking in the podcast uh, about maybe something specific, it may be helpful to you to see the picture that the original class was looking at. Now, if that's the case, well, you can go to YouTube and find the associated video and find then the point in the video and the picture that I'm talking about, because literally in some of these, a picture is truly worth a thousand words. So we hope you enjoy this journey through Asia Minor as we explore the seven cities that originally received the letter that we call Revelation from Pastor John. Enjoy this lesson. This week we are going to be talking about the book of Revelation, or at least this is going to be the introduction to the book of Revelation. So we're starting down the path of looking at these seven churches and then specifically to see what do they speak to us today? What's the message that we can understand today? We're not going to try to go into this whole idea of figuring out what it all means in the, in the end times. That's a difficult prospect. But we're going to start out with the churches of Revelation. This, of course, if you've been to Ephesus, this is the famous library at Ephesus. Absolutely magnificent building right at the end of the street where the two streets meet. So as you're walking down the, um, I think it's called Curate Street, towards the harbor, in front of you is that building, and that's the library. And of course, John, writing the book of Revelation, is pastoring out of Ephesus. So as we go through this, looking at all of the cities, Ephesus is going to play a central role in everything that's happening. Okay. So what I want to do is, before we start out, it's always a good idea to take everybody on a little tour of the Mediterranean so we can see exactly where we're going to be going. So this, of course, is the Mediterranean Sea, the water. To the south, on the south is Africa, and Egypt is right there on the south. To the north, west, you get the boot of Italy and Rome. You have Athens, which is kind of the central point there in the, in the Mediterranean. And then, of course, way off to the east, in what would be the little backwoods of the Roman Empire, is Israel. So there's Israel and Jerusalem. And, of course, we've been studying Mark, and that's the central place where the good news of God's reign is being launched from. So God calls Israel his home, Jerusalem is where his temple is, and the good news of his reign is coming out from there. Now, what's interesting to note, when the good news leaves Israel, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus and his disciples, and Jerusalem, it goes in this direction. So we don't have any books in our New Testament that come from any other direction than this. Now, it's obviously going into the Roman Empire, but specifically, it heads towards what we know today to be Turkey. 
So when, as we go through this, we're constantly going to have to reference back to Turkey and the culture in Turkey to understand what's being said in Revelation, because this is where it's all happening. So just a reminder, because this is going to play right into the book of Revelation. The good news, what we call the gospel, that's an, obviously an older word. The good news is that God is reigning. God is a king, he's reigning, and aren't we all happy that God's reigning? Yes, not somebody else, because when man reigns, they always think they're doing the right thing, and then it goes haywire. So when God reigns, it's perfect justice, and it's perfect reign. So that's the good news. Where does this come from? Now, we don't have a lot of time to turn there, but you guys know the text. Isaiah 52, 7. So Isaiah says this, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring, and then it's the Hebrew word for good news, the Hebrew word basar. So what do, what do the feet bring? Well, the, they proclaim peace. Now, what's interesting about this sentence is it says, who brings good tidings, right? Well, the word for good tidings is the same word, basar. So it almost says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good news. It's a little redundant, but uh, that's why in English, I think the NIV changed it. But anyways, it's that same Hebrew word, who proclaim salvation, and here's the key, the feet say to Zion, your God reigns. Your God is the king. And so when, we, when someone says, I believe in God, or I come to faith in God, you have faith that God is the highest in the hierarchy. And by doing that, it directs our focus up, as we remember. Okay, so that's the good news coming from Isaiah. Well, how does the Gospel of Mark begin, right? Verse 1. Mark 1.1 1, 1 says this, the beginning of the good news. Now, just in Mark writing that sentence that way, he's pulling all of that idea from Isaiah about the good news of God's reign. So the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, Messiah means the anointed one, and in the Old Testament, you anoint a king. And, by the way, he's the Son of God. So God is bestowing his authority and power onto his Son, and his son is going to take over reign of the kingdom. So this is good news. Jesus is now Lord, but this is going to fit right into our story in Revelation, okay? So just remember, whenever we talk about the good news, it's the good news that God is reigning. So if we go back to our map, there's the Mediterranean. You have Athens over here. The good news is going to end up going to this place that the Bible or the ancient people refer to as Asia Minor. Now, it's not Asia as we know Asia today, Asia Minor, although the Bible calls it Asia. And Asia Minor is this section in Turkey, southwest Turkey. And of course, the good news is going to leave Israel and start to spread in the world, and it's going to spread right there in Asia Minor. One thing to note, we all know the story in the book of Acts. 
in chapter two, the Holy Spirit is released, is sent out, and it lands, and now the Holy Spirit begins to spread out into its church. But I want to show you who was there that day. Who came to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage for the Pentecost festival that, that is part of this process? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, they give a list of countries of where people were coming from, right? So the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, that's today Iraq or the, the eastern part of Turkey. Then it says this, Judea and Cappadocia. Now that's in Turkey. So many of you have been to Cappadocia, beautiful, beautiful place. But that's in Turkey. Pontus and Asia, that's in Turkey. Phrygia and Pamphylia, that's in Turkey. The reason I wanted to show you this is if you look at everywhere in the world has already been primed to hear the good news, meaning there are the Jewish people are all over the ancient world. There's a synagogue in every city, right? Because it says this, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and, oh, by the way, those Gentiles who converted to Judaism. So they're all coming back. They hear the, they, they're hearing about the good news, and they go back home. But notice, too, that if you have Jews living in Asia for 500 years, that means the Old Testament, the Word of God is already in Asia. When Paul shows up, where does he go over and over again? He goes to the synagogue because he's going to speak Old Testament to them about Jesus being the Messiah as the New, the New Testament's being written. So I just want to note that the Word of God has already gone out into that area. So as John is writing Revelation, he's going to be connecting all the Old Testament to what's happening in that day. Okay, let's go a little bit closer. So now my camera is, or the, my camera, I didn't take that picture. Google Earth is zoomed in to right around the city of Ephesus. And I want you to notice how much of your New Testament is written to people who live right here in Turkey. So the first thing you notice is there's the city of Ephesus right on the coast. It was the New York City of their day. All the culture happened right there. Paul writes a book to the Ephesians. That's in Asia. You go a little bit to the east and you get Colossa. Well, Paul wrote a book to Colossa. And in the book to Colossa, if you read towards the end, he says, hey, go over and share this book with the Laodiceans. And take the letter I wrote the Laodiceans and read it in Colossa. So you'll notice these two cities right next to each other, Colossa and Laodicea. So they're right, they're a few miles apart. Then you have a little further to the east, Galatia. And Paul writes a letter to the Galatians. Well, that, those are huge letters in our New Testament, all being pointed towards Turkey. So Timothy is from Galatia. Okay, let's keep going, because now when John writes the book of Revelation, where is it written to? Well, it's written to these seven cities. John says, write the book, or, or Jesus says to John, write down what you see and send it to the churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John was a pastor. He lived in Ephesus. 
these are the churches that are under his view. And they're all in a, a, a bit of a circle. They're connected all by main major highways right on that western coast of Turkey. So how much of our New Testament is written either to Asia or people who live in Asia? Well, let's take a look. Luke is from Asia. The book of Acts, much of the book of Acts happens while in Asia, in Turkey. We've already talked about this. Galatians, that's in, that's in Asia. Colossians is in Asia. Well, I'll show you Colossa. Ephesians, that's in Asia. Philemon, he's from Colossa. So the book of the letter to Philemon. First and second Timothy. So Timothy grew up with his mother and his grandmother learning the Old Testament in a town called Lystra. Paul picks him up as a disciple and then drops him off in Ephesus. So Timothy is from Asia, becomes a pastor in Ephesus. Then, of course, you have John. So the book of John, the Gospel of John, written from Asia. Then you have 1, 2, and 3, John. Then you have Revelation, of course, and that's what we're going to be looking at. But that's a, that's a large amount of our New Testament that's written to Asia. And what's going to happen, just like when we, we study Mark that's happening in Israel, you have to look at the context of what's the, the, the history of Israel, the history of Judaism, how they interpreted their Bible. And that starts to make sense in our, as far as what Jesus is saying. Well, we can do the same thing with John and Paul over in Turkey. And you'll see, I'll give you an example today of how John connects the Old Testament with the context of Turkey. Okay, so that is our New Testament. This is where we're going to be going. And one of the major themes of not only Paul's writings, but John, and especially in Revelation, is there's going to be two kingdoms colliding. And you're going to have to choose. Who are you going to side with? Because there's consequences, right, to each one. There's the kingdom of God, yes? And then there's the kingdom of man, represented by the Roman Empire. The kingdom of God, Jesus is Lord. And in the kingdom of Rome, or the kingdom of man, Caesar is Lord. He calls himself a God. They refer to him as a son of God, as a divinity. And these two kingdoms are going to come clashing together right there at Ephesus, one from the east, the other from the west. And you're going to be forced in a very uncomfortable way to choose one or the other. Where do you put your allegiances? Is going to be a it's going to be a big question for those under John's pastor, uh, pastoral care. Okay, so these two kingdoms are, are colliding. Now, let's do a little bit of just timeline. I don't want to get bogged down in, in dates, but it's, it's helpful to recognize some things about how the gospel went out and, and about the point in time where scholars think Revelation is being written. We start off, of course, We'll call it 33 AD, even though, you know, we, we all debate everything in religion. That's debated too. So, but we'll call it 33 AD. You all understand that. Of course, we have Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension as Lord. Now, it took a while. 
we can talk about this another time, but it took a while for the gospel to go out, meaning, you know, some some scholars put Paul at about 16 years from the time he met Jesus on the Damascus Road to the time he leaves on his first missionary journey. So he's he's involved in something for 16 years before he walks out and starts spreading the good news. But somewhere around 50 AD in Asia, you start getting the good news of Jesus as Lord showing up. Now, what's important about this at this period of time in the Roman Empire is that the, the early Christians, very early, I'm talking Paul and all the disciples, they're considered a sect of Judaism. And that's really important to note because in the Roman Empire, you weren't allowed to have a new religion. They were strict about what religions came in. Well, Judaism was already an authorized religion. So they already had received a whole bunch of benefits. So as Paul is going out, they don't think of him as some brand new religion. They think of him as a sect of Judaism that's now preaching Jesus as this new Messiah. That's important, right? Because they get some protection. But then what happens in 66 AD, the Jews in Israel revolt. And suddenly, how fun is it to be a Jew in the Roman Empire? Not too fun, because you start, you know, anytime you go to war, something happens where the people start looking down on you. So in 70 AD, of course, the temple is destroyed, and now you get a schism between Christianity and Judaism. Because suddenly the Christians are saying, hey, whoa, whoa, that's not us. We're not revolting. Don't count us in that group, right? And you can see now you start to get a split of people who's who in this whole religion issue. By 90, well, let's just say protections had gone out the window. And we'll talk about who was the Caesar during that time a fellow by the name of Domitian. I'll show, the, I'll show you that later. But the book of Revelation is written sometime, at least scholars, of course, debate this, but somewhere between 90 to 95. John's in Ephesus. It's the Roman Empire under a Caesar named Domitian. And there's plenty of persecuting Christians. So the church is facing something it seems existential in a, in a sense, and John's got to pastor them through this. All right, so that's just the basic timeline of where the book of Re Revelation, at least scholars think the book is written. I think this is on the back of your sheet. How do we read Revelation? Well, there's four main schools of thought on this. And then there's about a thousand combinations of all four of those. So there's no one way to read the book of Revelation. But let me give you the four that most people will, that scholars will bring up. The first one is called futurists. These people read the book of Revelation and say every prophecy in there is going to be happening in the future just prior to the second coming of Jesus. Now, well, let me not comment on that yet. 
but that's the futurist way. All the, the, the prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. They're in the future prior to Jesus coming. Second, there's a group called preterists. They read it and they say, no, no, no. All those things happened in the first century. It's already been done. This isn't some prophecy that keeps being pushed forward in time as we all extend in time. These all happened in the first century. So that's the preterist view of it. Then you have a historical view. Now, you, you guys may have heard this before, but some people take the historical view as the ages of the church, right? That there's seven church ages, and each church that John mentions list is, is representative of a certain age, or uh, it's symbolic of this period of time between the Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension and his second coming. But it tells the history of the church. And then there's number four. Number four, the idealists, well, they say, look, it's the language used is, is what we would call Jewish apocalyptic. It's uh, symbolic of the struggle between good and evil. So when you read it, you don't attach it to one single person or one single event. You say, hey, these are transcendent principles of the, of the battle between good and evil that extend over all time. So it's idealist in that sense. They're not trying to pin it down to a certain uh, event or period of time. Now, those are the four main schools of thought. Then number five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, all the way out to affinity is some combination of these. Because very often people will say, well, I kind of think that it's futurist, but I also think it happened in the first century. And well, ideally, it's just the message of good and evil. So they're combining all of them. And I think most people, in some sense, combine all of them in some way, shape, or form. I'll tell, well, I'll explain how, I'm, how we're going to, I'm going to present it. But let me give you one more. This comes from a gentleman named Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and he calls it newspaper exegesis. And he says, the last thing you want to do with the book of Revelation is have the newspaper in one hand and the book of Revelation in the other hand. Because you will read that newspaper, and you will see every event happening in every period of time as happening in the book of Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation during World War II, or the lead-up to World War II, you were sure that's what they're talking about. In the 70s, you'd be sure that's what they're talking about. In the 80s, you'd be sure. 9-11, you're positive that's what they're talking about. So if you read the newspaper and Revelation, you'll always see the events of the day unfolding in some way, shape, or form. Now, the, the difficulty with this is for the number of people who have made predictions about this is what Revelation is saying about today, in a sense, they're all, they've all been wrong. And it's really hard to be able to detach yourself from so we're not going to read the book of Revelation like this. We don't want to keep CNN on in the background while we're reading uh, about the dragon in the sky. Okay, that's just another way of reading Revelation. Let's talk about how I want to look at it. Here's what I want to ask. This is the city of Laodicea. So I'm sure some of you have been to Laodicea. The excavation of Laodicea is relatively new. In the past 30 years, they've really brought out a lot of Laodicea. 
This is the main road in Laodicea. So you can assume Paul walked down that road, John walked down that road. It's pretty remarkable what's there. So that's Laodicea. And what I'd like to do is try to read some of these stories in Revelation as if we were all part of a house church. We have a house church in Laodicea. Pastor John is out on an island called Patmos. We don't know when he's coming back, and suddenly someone comes running in the house and says, we received a letter from Pastor John. And we all very excitedly say, read it. What does he say? And as the person's reading this letter, I want to ask, what would we hear? What are the things that John is speaking about that come from our culture, the culture of Asia? Maybe it's the culture of that city. Maybe it's the history of something that happened. And I think you'll see over and over and over again, they hear things that we can't. The reason they hear them is because they know their culture and we don't. So I just want to pretend for the next few weeks that we're a little teeny house church and John, our pastor, is going to speak right to us. Okay, and I'll, I'll give you an example in a minute of what that might look like. So John's going to do something that, well, when I went, when I went there to Turkey, Ray Vanderland, who was leading the, the trip, he referred to it as speaking text, text of the Bible, into the context of the, what's going on. So you take Old Testament text, because remember, they don't have a New Testament yet. They're steeped in Old Testament text, and they're going to speak it into the cultural and historical context of what's happening right there. And when you do that, you start to see things that you may not have seen before. And John, over and over and over, is going to start connecting these. One's going to speak into the other. And that drives you to look at your Old Testament. It drives you to think about your own culture and how they speak. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. The city of Laodicea was a wealthy city. There's plenty in um, Roman historians have written about Laodicea that have talked about their wealth. They were very proud of their wealth, as any wealthy city would be. Somewhere about 65, that's approximate AD, under the reign of Nero, there was an earthquake in Laodicea. And the city was, well, not totally destroyed, but they had to fix things up, right? Now, as you can imagine, whenever there's a natural disaster or chaos strikes a city, the federal government loves to come in with a bailout package to help you rebuild. Because, hey, you just had a natural disaster. The government will be your savior. And literally, that's the language they use. The Caesar will be your savior. We'll come in with our power, wealth, and we'll save your city. Now, what happens when the federal government bails you out? How much allegiance then, or let's put it this way, how many strings are attached to that bailout? 
while plenty of strings attached. So in 65, or when, whenever this earthquake happened, Laodicea said to Rome, uh, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want your money. We're wealthy. We can rebuild ourselves. And so they snubbed the government because they don't want to. Now, maybe they learned from Sardis. So in 17 AD, Sardis was devastated. We'll look at that next week, God willing. Sardis was dev devastated by an earthquake. The Caesar at the time, Tiberius, came in and rebuilt the city. But as part of his bailout package, he demanded that they rename the city after him. So they named it Tiberius, which they didn't want to do, but they kind of felt obligated. So Laodicea says, look, we don't want, we don't want your money, Rome. We'll rebuild it ourselves." Okay, with that said, look at this sentence as John's writing to Laodicea. John says this, this is in Revelation 3.17. You can go read it. And we'll be in Laodicea, God willing, in a couple of weeks. But look how John couches the message. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Now, that's right out of their very recent history. Because if this is 90, that's only 25 years earlier that they told the Roman government that they didn't need any money. And, it was, and they were famous for that. They find it in uh, Roman historians' right comment on that. So that, this is what I mean by context. John uses a sentence to call out something in there that everybody in that house church would understand. But what about the Old Testament? Where is he getting this in the Old Testament? Now, if you have your Bible, turn to Hosea 12. It's Hosea 12, verse 8, and I'll give you a second before I put it up on the screen. So Hosea 12, 8, well, look what it says here. Ephraim boasts. So Ephraim is, thinks a lot more of themselves than they are. And look what Ephraim says. I am rich. I have become wealthy. So where's John getting his language from? Well, he pulls it from the context of Laodicea, and he's connecting it to a message in the Old Testament. And what's interesting about the, the message from the Old Testament is you have to read the next sentence. So Ephraim boasts. Ephraim says, I am rich. I have become wealthy. And because of my wealth, with all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. Now, is that true or not? No. John says, or Jesus, in, in the letter to Laodicea, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. And then it goes on to say, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. No, we can see all of your sins. Now, First of all, you have context, right? That's Laodicea, their history. Second, you have the Old Testament. So we're bringing text into that. Third, is there a transcendent principle going on with wealthy people? Yeah, do wealthy people sometimes think that they don't have sin, that their wealth somehow covers up their sin? Well, yeah, that's a transcendent issue with the Bible. The Bible is always talking about that the wealth of people 
often cover up for their sin and they can't see it. So not only do you, you do have text to context, but you have transcendent principle as well. So that's just one little sentence. In every church that we'll read about, John does this. He's connecting something in their context to something in the Old Testament, and it just blows your mind because it speaks very loudly, and they would hear what is being said. Okay, so that's just one example. Does this make sense? It's text to context. And we would hear it very loudly. We don't hear it because we're born in the 20th century in, in the West, and we don't understand the history and the culture. But it's very powerful when you begin to see that. Uh, wait till next week. Next week, God willing, will be in Sardis. It's, it just blows your mind how John is making these connections. And it's brilliant. Now, of course, it's inspired, so it's brilliant, but it's brilliant nonetheless. Here's one of the issues. What you're looking at right here is the temple to the Caesar Domitian. And this temple is in downtown Ephesus. Domitian became Caesar 81 to 96. That's right while John's writing Revelation. And what he reinstated, or at least tried to revive as much as possible, is something that we call the imperial cult. Now, this was started under Caesar Augustus, and maybe even before that, Julius Caesar. But under Caesar Augustus, especially in the East, in Asia, they began to worship him as a god, as as deity. So Pergamum, the city of Pergamum, was the first city to build a temple to Caesar Augustus. Now, that was back in like 27 BC. But as each successive Caesar would come, some of them would claim deity, others would not. But in Domitian's case, he's reviving the imperial cult. He should be worshipped as a deity. So right here, John is living in the, in the city of Ephesus. Domitian comes to power and decides that his city, the city that's going to hold his temple, is going to be Ephesus. And so for years, probably, the people of Ephesus would sit on the hillside and watch this massive temple being built. And can you imagine your little house church when all the little all the grandkids are coming up to you and saying, are we going to be okay? What does it mean? Are we going to have to worship Domitian? Are they going to force us to bow down to him? What do you tell your grandchildren? And that becomes a very difficult thing. You're, you're watching this unfold. You can see it coming. And then the persecutions begin. What do you do when a soldier tells you to go offer incense to Domitian? Do you do it? If you're living in Ephesus and we say no, but what's the consequence? So it depends on who's in charge at the time. And the, So anyways, this becomes a big deal for John. Because Domitian chose that city right where the gospel is so powerfully being brought out into the world to put his temple. 
and you're going to have to make a choice. One of the messages that I want to bring up about Revelation that I think John is very clearly saying is that God is still reigning. It doesn't matter how bad you think it looks outside, God hasn't lost control. So that very first uh, chapter of Revelation, God says, look, folks, I was caught up into a vision into heaven, and I looked over, and sitting on the throne was Jesus. He's still on the throne. It's not Domitian. Jesus is on the throne. Don't get confused. It's a very powerful message. I don't know what the Domitian, maybe the COVID-19 is our Domitian. It doesn't mean God has lost control. One of the key passages, if you want to turn to Revelation 13, if you have a minute. So as John is pastoring his church, persecutions are on the rise. Domitian is putting his temple there at your city. And all and anxieties through the roof because what's going to happen? Does this mean God has forgotten about us? Does it mean that God's not on the throne? Does it mean who knows, right? And so here John says this, Revelation 13, verse 10. He leads up to it as talking about this dragon that's coming. Now you can imagine that's probably symbolic, as many think, of Domitian. And then verse 10 says, look, folks. In a sense, I don't know what's going to happen. If you go in, if you go to be a slave, then you're going to go be a slave. If anyone is to go into captivity, well, then you go into captivity. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, by the sword, they'll be killed. Basically saying, you can't always stop what's happening around us, right? God doesn't always protect every single Christian or Jew. But it doesn't mean that he's not on the throne, right? We don't know what's going to happen. And look at the last part of this. If you're going to be a slave, well, you're going to be a slave. If you'll die by the sword, well, you're going to die by the sword. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So the book of Revelation, one of the messages at least is, no matter what is happening, whether it's Osama bin Laden or World War II and the Holocaust or COVID-19, it doesn't mean God's off the throne. And we don't always know what's going to happen, but we can guarantee it requires patient endurance and faithfulness on the, people of, on the part of the people of God. Okay, so that's one message. We'll talk about that as we go through, that God is still reigning. And then finally, God's judgment in the end will prevail. So apocalyptic literature that comes out of Jewish writings always comes in a time of persecution. And the message is typically you think that, that you, you, the king, think that your power is going to save you, but it's not. God's judgment ultimately will prevail. So that however we see people acting, God is still judging. And we can have faith and live in peace that God's judgment will, in the end, prevail. That is at least an introduction to the book of Revelation. It's in Asia. 
we need to look at the context of Asia. We need to combine the context with the Old Testament because that's their scripture when they're when John's writing this. The New Testament is just being formulated at that time. And we want to see what does he say to each of those churches. And well, I think it'll just blow your mind. Put your helmet on because your mind's about to be blown. It's really amazing to see how this how John plays this out. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.